Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Visit us online at changehealthcare.com. Hello, everyone. Today is March 26, 2021, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection Podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, is Arian Malik, and we're also joined today by our team member, Genevieve Morris, Senior Director, Clinical Interoperability Strategy. Welcome to the podcast, Genevieve, and hey, Arian. Hello. Hello. Great. Thanks for being here, you guys. I'm pleased to introduce our special guest today, Lisa Berry. Lisa Berry is the interim CEO of the Strategic Health Information Exchange Collaborative, also known as Chic the trade association that represents the majority of HIEs in the U.S. Before Sheik, Lisa led health IT and interoperability policy at the CMS Innovation Center. Lisa, thanks for being here and welcome. Thanks, great to be here with you all. All right, let's get started. Our main focus today is to discuss the current state of interoperable health data, public health data use cases and access, information blocking and business associate agreements, and all things related to interoperability and HIEs. Wow. Easy, easy topics. Yep, yep, yep. We have How uh, much time do you have? <laughs> exactly. We have a full plate. All right. Well, let's get let me get out of the way then. Interoperability. So where are we now? What do you guys think? Lisa, give us your take. Okay, you know how there is a huge container ship stuck in the Suez Canal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of like that. And all no, the memes. Perfect memes that show the incredible monumental challenge of healthcare interoperability and the tools we have it are the size relative to the massive container ship of the very small looking digger trying desperately to make some space. Wow, that's a pretty good visual. Everybody's seen it, I'm sure, by now. Yeah, hey, hey Deanne, the ONC just published a data brief, as they do, on uh, access to at least. Um, large-scale national connectivity or data sharing. And what it showed is that we've actually made significant progress on uh, data sharing. Too much of it is still going through um, same EHR to same EHR connectivity. Um, but I remember doing the the work that we were doing for, for COVID and COVID readiness um, at the Duke Margolis Center. And we heard from Commonwealth and eHealth Exchange and Care Quality and all of them are publishing pretty significant numbers in terms of data that's flowing either through the trust framework or flowing through the actual networks. Um, So, you know, this is an area where I think there's good news, which is there's a lot of data flowing and then not so good news, which is, is it, is it, are we still flowing across trust boundaries? Are we flowing across states to national entities and you know maybe lisa i'd like to ask you about uh the question of okay if you're a state that's got hie infrastructure at the state level um is you know are the national networks a threat are they a partner and then how do we get you know if you have a record locator service at a state level and commonwealth's record locator service at a national level how do we make sure that all this stuff you know quote just works unquote um, with regard to data flowing, at least for treatment of patient access. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, so first of all, it's funny that you're being so much more optimistic and talking about this really, I think, quite positive uh, data brief from ONC that's showing that things actually are starting to move. But for me, I really draw a distinction between things are starting to move and we're seeing really interoperable health data. I think data is moving. Do I think that it qualifies as interoperable health data and it's data that is, you know, extensible and usable and that we're exchanging fire resources? No, of course not. We're sending, you know, PDFs of things, but we're sending them. So I think that's good. Um, so I just wanted to sort of respond there on that front at first to say that I do think things are starting to move. I don't think we've reached some, you know, magical land of the future where data elements are moving to the exact place they need to go at the exact right time and being integrated seamlessly into systems at the point of care. So I guess that's the distinction I would draw. Yeah, and I think, uh, Lisa, I think it's a super good point. And I, uh, you know, the irony of, you know, you served as well as I did and you create policy and, and you know, I worked to create the US CDI policy with the ONC career staff. And, you know, it's such a great policy. And then you get out into the real world and people talk about it like it's magic. Um, like, you know, we have the USCDI, are you exchanging the USCDI? And then the rubber meets the road and you start actually trying to serve that data up to people who want to use it. And suddenly it's not all magical as the policy makes it seem, right? Like, so we, so we have this data set, we may or may not actually be exchanging that data set on a regular basis. We may or may not be exchanging it in a standardized vocabulary. And I think, you know, all of the all of the old issues that are not, you know, the shiny, flashy, really cool technology things, but just like the really core underpinning things that still have to be done to make things interoperable, we're still just not doing them, right? So things like, have you actually mapped your data in your system <laughs> to a standard so that when it gets exchanged, I know what to do with it, right? Have you set up your master patient index so we can match our patients correctly? Have we recorded consent? You know, like all that stuff. And and I, you know, I I tend to straddle a fence on the optimistic, non-optimistic. Um, you know, my my nickname is Dream Killer, so I I try to at least be a little optimistic when I can be. So I think we're making progress, but there's still just so many core things that we have to do to make actual exchange happen at a, at a broader scale. And I, that's why I think your illustration, Lisa, of what's going on in the canal is such a good one because stuff is happening, but, but not at the scale that we need it to in a way that's as easy as it should be and as consistent as it should be. Yeah, and I think, I think the other thing that we see right now is that there are a lot of different types of exchange happening right now. And I think, you know, you might've mentioned this at the top, either Deanne or Arian, you know, it's kind of like um, it, organizations are using a, a bunch of different methods. I'm just looking at the data brief and, you know, they have these whole long list of methods, uh, non-electronic, electronic, not using a third party or network, electronic using a third party or network, which includes direct, includes a state, regional, local HIE, uh, vendor-based exchange. And you just see that given the numbers they're quoting here, all of these provider sites are using a whole variety of different methods to do different things, probably based on who they're exchanging with, when they're exchanging. So it's not like there's one way, and it's certainly not like uh, they aren't still using mail and fax and e-fax, right? That's still very, very, very present in the 
daily operations, which is kind of what you were also talking about at the top, you know, what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis to get yeah. stuff where it needs to go. Yeah, that, and then, and then to, to, sorry, to Genevieve's point, can you actually do something when you get it? Although again, I'll put an optimistic spin on this, which is, uh, you know, the, the model that at least we were working on 12 years ago was, <laughs> First, let's get data flowing, and then we're going to uncover whether that data is useful, and then we'll work on whether the data is useful or not. And if you look at every data project that you do internal to an enterprise, you can either spend your life trying to get the data perfect and then share it, or you can share it, discover really quickly what's right and what's wrong, and then work on fixing it. And I think we're in this awkward period where the data are being exchanged, but uh, you know, now we're discovering what's in these systems. I, I think that's true. And I, I will say, um, I'm still just always shocked and surprised by the vendor's lack of adherence to standards. Like we're still seeing C32s being shared, right? Like, I, you know, that, um, that type of behavior <laughs> just makes it so much more difficult for us to do exactly, um, that area. And I, I, you know, I, I do understand why there's, you know, that tale of getting up to speed, but but it just makes it so much more difficult once you're exchanging when you have to deal with data formats that technically shouldn't have been in use for what, like seven years now? Eight? Well, well, as someone who has worked at an EHR, let me tell you, someone who's worked at an infamous EHR as well, let me tell you that, um, you know, obviously we all know that the reality of software development, especially, you know, in complex firms is that, of course, these things, you know, are deprecated but are still out there. Of course, they haven't upgraded all of their customers, right? I mean, that's just the, the that's broadly the reality of software development firms. And I just, it's really unfortunate that it keeps happening, but I'm 0% I'm surprised. Let me ask you all three this question. Now, three years ago, the Healthcare Leadership Council, or HLC, that, of course, Change Healthcare is a member of, did an interoperability study where they spent a lot of time, brought in the, um, the, the very famous researchers from UCSF, and went around and asked over 60 stakeholders, where do you think we are with interoperability, and what do you see as the barriers? And it was a pretty comprehensive report, but one of the big findings was overarching the lack of business case to really promote interoperability. So we can talk about standards, we can talk about you know, why are we still using fax machines, but what do you guys think about the lack of a business case? Is that getting better? Well, so I guess I would say that, um, you know, to, to some extent, there's a forcing mechanism from, you know, law and regulation, right? We obviously saw that, you know, Genevieve and I were very much part of um, the, the rolling out and the ideation around what do we do with this law to turn it into something that people have to do. Um, and that his, you know, that's, a, I'd say, fits and starts. And I would say definitely half measures is where we are today. There's this vague sort of feeling that there's a requirement for interoperability, but there's not a lot of teeth behind it still. Um, and some of that is coming with time and some of that is coming maybe later with additional regulations, additional laws, but we just don't know yet. And then I think the other piece is um, there's kind of a um, sort of a theory, that, a theory of change, I guess, that if you are at financial risk for a population, of course you would want to make sure that their data follows them and goes to their different providers and you avoid, you know, duplicate spend and 
unnecessary cost and things that they don't need, procedures that are you know, unnecessary because you have all the information. But I don't know if that's really happening in real life beyond this sort of vague theory that that is a good thing. And everyone else, feel free to push back on me, but that's kind of my sense of it. Yeah, well, I think we've seen it in Maryland, right? So so Maryland is the only state with all the all-payer rate setting system, um, which for listeners not familiar with that, um, basically all of the hospitals have a bucket of money that they share for a certain population of patients. Um, and once that money's gone for a patient, that money's gone. And, and I do think we have seen a significantly higher willingness to share data amongst the healthcare systems within our state um, for that population, to be very clear, for that population, not necessarily for everyone, um, because of the all-payer rate setting, because they do get penalized if, if they don't manage that care appropriately. So I think we've seen some of that play out, but you know, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said when I served, which is you know, there's never gonna be a business case that's purely about the safety of the patient and the best care for the patient, particularly in a fee-for-service system. Like that, that just is not the case. And there's never a business case for the patient having access to their own data just by, you know, on its own without other things wrapped around it. And so I, I agree with Lisa. I think that that's why we have the forcing mechanism from the regulatory perspective. I think we're going to see people, um, I think we're going to see people figure out what that means. You know, I, I it's a massive shift in thinking and I, you know, we're, you know, we're seeing this every day on the ground. I'll, real life example, we went to a provider organization and said, hey, we have a payer who would like to access your data for processing claims for payment and operations purposes. And they flat out said, we're not giving access to data from our EHR to any payer. And I was like, well, that's info blocking. <laughs> like, you can't do that. So I think it's it's a major mindset shift. Um, and I, I do think business cases certainly help with making that happen faster. Um, but we still just need that forcing mechanism because, you know, my safety doesn't have a business case behind it other than the, the well-being of, you know, the country and health as a whole. Yeah, there is a theory of change, uh, to use Lisa's term, relative to info blocking that EHR vendors were by and large the bad actors and standing in the way of uh, interoperability. And there clearly were cases where EHRs were just terrible at interoperability. And in some cases where EHR vendors um, didn't tell the truth with respect to their capabilities. But I've seen many more cases where provider organizations are reluctant to share because you're going to steal my patient. Um, and I think we're in this world where neither the incentives for ACO-like arrangements and value K arrangements um, are big enough to get people to jump over from fee-for-service. And we've been stuck in this in this world for, I don't know, 10 years, eight years. Um, and then the penalties aren't big enough on the information blocking side for anybody to really worry. Um, and you know we we've put in place we have yet I think to put in place an action the penalties for the EHR vendors and we have no clarity on what the what the penalties are uh, on the provider side of the organization and you know until we either have really really big carrots or really really big sticks I think we're going to be in this mushy slow moving it'll happen eventually but maybe not in our in our uh, productive lifetimes uh, world. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, and then I would say, you know, I live in Maryland um, and uh, am a, I'm a healthcare user in Maryland. And, you know, even with all of these supposedly aligned incentives, and of course there are other sort of, there's like the Vermont all-pair ACO model, which is voluntary. There's a Pennsylvania rural hospital, you know, aligned model, but nothing like the commitment in Maryland, as Genevieve mentioned. And, you know, CRISP, the HIE um, in the area, is, you know, built into all parts of this model. And still, and still as a patient, I do not feel like my safety and certainly in no way, shape or form my convenience is prioritized in the system, right? There's still um, in my own life even uh, truly hundreds of cases of me having to port uh, health records around, even in this state, even in this situation. So, you know, it's still not really happening. And I don't even use care outside of one system very often which is also a very interesting aspect of the, the situation here. So it, it, it's tough on the incentives and penalty side. Yeah, and, and Lisa, it's because you're not part of that group <laughs> that's in the all-payer rate setting. And I think, right. you know, we are, we are unfortunately ending up in like a little bit of have and have not scenario, right? Where if, if you're in that Medicare population um, who arguably need their care coordinated to a higher degree because they see more physicians typically have many more health conditions. But if you, but if you're like us, and I, I'm the same way, Lisa. I, I uh, see a number of healthcare providers to deal with a number of separate conditions and um, have run into those same issues as well. Like you know, we're just sort of left out in the cold. Let alone the issue that when my data is available, I've had more than once a provider just say, "I don't have time to look at it," which is a whole different level of frustration. That's it, that side of it being available. But, but I think we're almost moving into that have and have nots where if there is a business model like an ACO or the all-payer rate setting, those folks are kind of set. And then the rest of us are sort of forced to figure out how to make sure our data moves around because that's just the reality of where we're still at. Right, but yep. then now, now we're talking about an individual, or we're 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 placing the blame a little bit. We're placing the work on the individuals when obviously it's a systemic problem. And the systemic problem is that you know, as as Erin just said, there's not a great um, the the about the, the the incentives aren't good enough, and the penalties aren't bad enough to really really drive some systemic change here. And so I think you know we are seeing progress incrementally. Again, this data brief you know proves that out, and the work you know speaking from my side and the work that I'm doing today with uh, health information exchanges across the country, you know work is happening, progress is being made, but it's certainly not the sort of dramatic progress we would need to achieve, I think, the goals of nationwide interoperability. Yeah, I, I guess I've been on the cliff before staring into the abyss. Um, and I, I agree with everything we've just said. And I'd also say that David McCallie and I started talking about Commonwealth in 2012, uh, started kicking around the idea. I think we ended up figuring it out, figuring out the 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 trust arrangements and launched in HIMSS in 2013. And now Genevieve, it's nine years later and we're seeing a lot of data flow through yeah. uh, Commonwealth. So it, it, it was one of those where, you know, after I give up, <laughs> other people didn't. Um, and and it works. It, it doesn't work as quickly as we had hoped, but it now has gotten to the point where it's got the scale that we would have hoped for uh, I don't know, 2015, 2016, every so often I look at the um, the Paul Tang and Farzad Mastashari 
slide from the first meaningful uh, from the first policy committee work group that talked about meaningful use as a six-year program. And I just look at that slide, and you know, at the end of six years, we're in a learning health system. And I look at that slide, and I just laugh. But <laughs> the, the truth is, the system is moving. It's just moving in, at incredibly at an incredibly slow pace. And if we want anything to change differently, other than that slow pace, where 10 years from now, the things that people are just now thinking about will start to be at scale. If we want to move faster than that, then then the penalties have to be bigger or the incentives have to be have to be bigger or both. No, I totally agree with you. And I I think that's true. And I think that's one component of it. I think the other component that I will say probably till my dying breath, and I am a policy wonk, so I'm sure that's part of my perspective is I feel like consistently over the last 10 years, um, particularly at the federal level, um, we've chosen to focus on fixing the technology problems, which are arguably the easier problems to solve, um, while ignoring, uh, not all of them are easy to solve, right? Like patient matching, hard issue to solve, right? Um, but while ignoring the policy and trust issues that in my heart of hearts, I don't think should exist because we should just share data and I shouldn't need trust frameworks, but we, but in reality, <laughs> we need those. Um, and so I, like, I feel like we always ignore the harder part of the equation. And then we're surprised when the new shiny technology doesn't work, right? Like, and Erin, you remember back when Direct came out, because I still remember that meeting with ONC on that report that we did for them, <laughs> where I had to sit in a room with you and tell you what was going on. Um, like, we, we just pretend that that part of the equation doesn't exist, and we solve the technology issue, and then we're surprised when it doesn't work. And, and it feels like we're doing the same thing with FIRE again, where we're like, well, FIRE solves all of our problems, right? But like, it doesn't solve the identity management problem. It you know doesn't solve the matching problem. It doesn't solve the data use rights problem. It doesn't solve the consent problem. Like like there's just all this policy stuff that gets wrapped around that that we just consistently ignore, and then we wonder <laughs> why we don't have exchange at a at a nationwide scale because we've we've just ignored part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I would say from the HIE front, 100%, right? HIEs and technology, they're just, you know, made up of a variety of, of tech stacks. The tech gets better over time, potentially the patient matching gets better, data quality potentially gets better if you work on it. But really the biggest issue with, you know, local, regional and statewide HIE is as always the governance model is always the trust framework. That, that's that's 100% the issue that's still in front of us. And that is just so much harder to solve. I mean, you need you need legal experts who are also really, really adept uh, at the at the technological side and really understand the intersecting data use agreements and and trust frameworks in the region and the country. Right? That's a there's a couple of those I think in the country. Yeah, there's not many. <laughs> I would say. Right. Yeah. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Insight, innovation transformation. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. I just wanted to ask you about Tefka. Genevieve, I know that's your baby, but where does Tefka fit in with all of this? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I, I can pray front. I joined ONC <laughs> as an appointee to do Tefka, right? Because I, you know, my, my biggest concern was scaling nationwide interoperability. And 
And as great as the regional exchanges are and the national exchanges are, we just still have these massive white spaces. And we have a, a problem where folks have to connect to multiple exchanges in order to get the access they need. And, and that's just not, that's not feasible, right? It's, it's not a reasonable request to ask, you know, a payer in Texas to join six different HIEs, right? It, it's just, it should be better than that. Um, and so, you know, the goal of TEFCA, in my mind at least, um, was to make it so those organizations could have a solid, well not have a solid, but have a single agreement around things that right now they don't agree on, right? And and I, <laughs> I deal with this every day in my current job around things like permitted purposes and the security requirements and just, you know, all the different things that people do differently in the, in the various exchanges. And, and our, you know, the other sort of piece there is, you know, health information exchanges, both national and regional, are governed by the members who are, you know, who pay to participate in those organizations. And so inherently, there are things that they can't do, even if the leadership wants to do them, because their membership has a steering committee and they can't do it right. So if they, even if the leadership wants to expand beyond treatment, they maybe can't do that, right? And so one of the other goals <laughs> was to try and get everyone to a level playing field to say, listen, our exchanges across our country at a minimum should be doing these things. And like that should just be the accepted. And then think of all the value add things that you could do on top of that to provide more value and you know, bring members into your exchange if we just all agree that this is sort of the minimum operating that we do. Um, you know, that that was really the goal. I I am um I mean, I'm I'm a pretty upfront person. I'm sad it's taken this long. It, I feel like it should have been so much faster uh, to get this done <laughs> than, it, than it's been. But I'm really, really hopeful that it's going to keep moving forward and that, you know, within now as we're starting to come out of COVID, we'll start to actually see movement with that. Because, my gosh, think of how much easier it would have been to do some of the COVID stuff if all of the exchanges were talking to each other. Well yeah, let me, let, me turn up, let me turn up on that, uh, Genevieve, on that note, a, a question, yeah. set of questions for, for Lisa. You know, I sort of started at the top of this call thinking about, well, if I have a state HIE, uh, you know, I live here in California. Uh, my friend Claudia is running Manifest Medics. Uh, we run uh, Commonwealth. We've got care quality based exchange. There's nothing but Epic all around us uh, that are doing Epic to Epic uh, exchange through a care quality trust framework. Um, what what minimal level of common trust is required so that this just works and that all of the ways that we currently have that we've seen in that ONC report to open up exchange um, are enabled for uh, for uh, treatment and patient access and uh, in the language of uh, 21st century cures other permitted purposes. Um, and then maybe also framed up the same way, you know, as somebody doing a case investigation for uh, COVID and needing access to appropriate information, you know, same question of how do we just, how do we, what's the, what's the minimal trust framework where all this stuff wires up the right way? Yeah, I mean, I think first I would say that uh, for a long time and, and for no one, not necessarily anyone's fault here, but I would say that a lot of folks, including myself, were pretty convinced that TEFCA was not going to move forward. And I think over 
the last couple of months, it seems like there is renewed interest and, and indeed a requirement to, to, to move this forward. Um, and, and I think every every day, really, over the last year, has made it so clear how necessary it is to have, you know, common rules of the road and and be that sort of necessary minimal framework, obviously, to um, to, to to enable that. And so um, I don't know exactly what's going to be sort of in the final package, obviously. But I do think that um, we're at the point now, especially with all the public health use cases, all of the, um, you know, gnashing of teeth and the struggle to, to quickly get things connected, even when, especially when I should say, when, you know, HIPAA was in some cases, um, you know, put to the side in the pandemic and people could move faster in theory, but it just takes a long time to work all those rules out. And so if that exists and if it's really going to exist as a as a, a common agreement and a framework for trusted exchange, like we're, I think we're ready. I think the market needs it now. So oh, I'm actually more and so more optimistic now. <laughs> you made my weekend, I think, with that. Because <laughs> I'm with you. I, I I thought it might die as well. And and I think, you know, and I get it. Like I, I am someone who thinks the industry should should do the things the industry should do, but it, it would have I'm with you. It would have been so much easier to do some of the public health things we needed to do in the last year if the agreement had already existed and we right. had already said like, yeah, we're, we're all ready to connect together because we agree these are the data use rules for the public health exchange. Um, and I think particularly people outside of our industry um, and people in Congress um, don't understand how complex all of that stuff is and why you can't just snap your fingers and it's done. Um, and so I, I, you know, that's encouraging to hear that it that folks are um, feeling like it's going to move forward, even if it doesn't look like what I put together. I, I think we I think there's still value. To it. And feeling like it needs to move forward. And I think, you know, we've heard from multiple large payers and plans at the, you know, commercial government, others, that they really need a, a way to simplify and shorten the sort of contracting, negotiation, data use process to access this information across the country. And all we can say right now is, yeah, it seems like a good idea. We've been trying for a long time, you know, I, and so I know there's a need. Um, I know that the public health use, health use cases make it um, even more attractive because they're potentially less competitive in, in, in terms of you know working between different entities, right? People under people are more likely to say, okay, I get why this needs to happen, regardless of my business model, regardless of what I think I, I want to do competitively. This is really like this has got to move forward. We've got to connect here. So we're we're hearing that pretty consistently now. Yep. And and by the way, I think some people when they say governance is hard in healthcare, think that there's some amazing set of unsolved privacy cases. That we just don't know how to do and we've all got to do deep thinking with you know room full of lawyers in order to figure out and lisa i think you alluded to this the reason that governance is quote hard unquote is because uh, people don't want to share or they want to make sure that they control the rails for any sharing rather than open those rails for for public benefit um and you know there are some sticky issues there are some you know, how do we use uh, how do we use de-identified data, and under what you know what what regimes do we or don't we use de-identified data? And I get all that stuff, but at the end of the day, it's all a proxy fight for 
do I, the system that, that originated this data on the patient's behalf, control or not the rails for data sharing? Um, so, sorry, that's my, that's my pessimistic take. But, and, and, and I do think, to Genevieve's point and to Lisa's point, that just cutting through that and saying, okay, great, you don't have a right. There are certain things that you don't have a right to worry about because the data sharing is being done for uh, authorized purposes would help a lot of these governance questions because they would just take a whole set of, I have concern, you know, concern trolling uh, cases off the, off the table. <laughs> I, so there's only so much I can say. I have lots of secrets locked in my brain, but I can tell you that these kind of things just are coming up on a daily, daily basis. That that very question of who who's going to control the rails, right? And that concern, and that you know, in some cases, fake concern, concern trolling versus you know, actually um, real concerns about what happens with folks' data. Um, so uh, just just want to agree really um, enthusiastically, yes, that's the issue. Yep. Uh, maybe we go on to public health, uh, Deanne, unless you have other. Nope, that's good. Cool. Um, so, so Lisa, there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, belief and in and uh, actual real work in some areas where there's a strong and functional HIE that the there's the um, the public utility model for HIEs and where there's a super compelling public utility model for HIEs is in data sharing on the state's behalf and in particular uh, data sharing for public health use um, and connecting standard connectors um, to simplify the jobs of uh, provider organizations, EHR vendors, et cetera, for submitting data flows for public health. We've just gone through an experience where we've reinvented everything that we're doing um, in the last year and kind of proxied it and made it up on the fly. But I wonder, as we're starting to see things like, uh, you know, as we're starting to see the signs that Congress might align on a funding model for uh, public health preparedness and where that funding model might follow a framework of guaranteed funding contingent on standards and interoperability um, at the state level, where the appropriate roles are for uh, state HIEs in being, you know, a utility or a partner for states in uh, connecting public health, and you know, maybe also what are the preconditions for being or not being in that public utility space? Yeah, I mean, I really so so it, so I should say first of all, there are um, now myriad public health use cases for HIE that have just, of course, um, sprung up over the last year, and of course, before that, they didn't start in 2020. But in many cases, they picked up on work that had already happened or had barely started, and they really accelerated it. And that goes, it varies from electronic lab reporting, electronic case reporting, syndromic surveillance, data quality work. You know, one of the canonical use cases, which I just keep mentioning because it's so perfect to me, is just taking in all of this varied and minimal information about uh, COVID testing and enhancing that with the longitudinal record of the individual to understand things like demographics that isn't there in the first place because you're getting it from CVS and from the Baltimore Convention Center and from somewhere down the road, right? And so that's just a really great example of how HIEs are really building out those use cases. But I think to your question, um, 
the only way you can be a public health data utility in your state is if you are in many or most cases the state designated entity so the state has said all right either you're a government agency or you're a quasi-governmental agency that we designated and helped create and we are part of the governance model or you're a nonprofit that kind of got adopted by the state and brought into the state laws and working with the agencies and so it really requires deep, deep engagement with your state or your region, you know, local or state public health, oftentimes with Medicaid. And in those situations, you know, HIAs can be this really important, uh, you know, public health reporting service, um, public health data connector, connecting between providers of all stripes, in some cases payers, and then of course the state public health. In those situations, it's a really strong model, but you've got to have that integration. And as you know, that's really, really tricky. Um, and the states where it's working, that's what they've done. And they've been doing that for years. So I think it's important to say it doesn't happen overnight. It's about these, these, these partnerships and this um, you know, integration that's been going on for a long time and requires um, political will, which is really hard to muster in these situations, as you all know very well. Hey, um, so I want to follow up on that question because I think sometimes the the state my my reaction to this to the public utility model is there are places where uh, I think not doing a public utility model would be ridiculous because the state HIE is, has a long history they've already got deep ties to the state they've got um, you know they they are the trusted partner and so why would you do anything different and then other regions where you know it just feels like you're not going to get the trust and the deep connectivity and um, the data sharing arrangements just by waving a magic wand. So it, it kind of feels like there's a lot of hard work that a, an HIE needs to do in order to establish the preconditions for making a public health utility model work that is sort of independent of, somewhat independent of whether you declare it as a utility model. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think you'll see that there's 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 really a great diversity and divergent things happening across the country. And I think that's important, right? One of the things we talk about is that, you know, state, lo local areas, regions, and states should have some level of self-determination in terms of how they want to organize themselves, right? We kind of agree on that as a principle in this country. And the same thing goes for sort of health data and how, you know, local areas want to organize their health data utility, how they want to organize data sharing interoperability. And the one caveat is that the federal government can say, well, these funds come with strings attached, and that is you need to exchange data in the standard way. You need to use the standards, this technology to do this. Um, and, and that's fine. The, the, the federal government can say that the funds come with these strings attached, but then the local area has to figure out what they want to do. Um, and so I think you'll see that the places where HIEs are really strong and well integrated, they will continue to do that. They will continue to grow and be really strong and well integrated. And elsewhere, things will be different over time. We have the rise of, you know, private HIEs, um, for-profit companies now recently purchased by private equity in some some cases, which is a little bit concerning. But also at the same time, um, it just shows that there are different models that are working in different areas. And so I think. The federal government has the not enviable task of trying to sort of coordinate this and pull together one or a couple different HIE-like strategies across the country. Um, so for me, that that's that's where it is right now. I'd love to see there be more 
uh, stronger HIEs that are sort of connected to their local communities, their regions, and their states. Um, but it's a big lift to start from I got nothing to I have a great HIE that is really tied into the provider community of different stripes, as well as the state and public health. I mean, going from zero to that in 2021 will be a really, really, really big lift. That's great. I appreciate your perspectives on that topic. And I know I'm excited to see where this all ends up as we move through this year. I want to pivot for a second and talk about how does the 21st Century Cures information blocking rule intersect with business associate agreements or BAAs? You asked I mean, like a super complex question. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to, right? Anything that exists, you know, anything that is that, that is already following the law is supposed to be okay. But at the same time, of course, um, you know, uh, we we will see. The, the best answer with information blocking enforcement, in my opinion, is we will see. I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to sharpen up what the issue is, just so people who aren't uh, as in the weeds as we are kind of frame it up. So, you know, one of the things that dawned on a number of us when we were thinking about information blocking and existing BAAs is that, um, you know, I get data as an HIE uh, through a set of business associate agreements that I have with provider organizations. And I have only the data use arrangement or agreements that I have that are granted under that BAA and, and none others. Um, and if somebody comes to me and they fit the definition of a, of a, uh, of a legitimate purpose under 21st century cures because they're safe rails under HIPAA or others, uh, public health data sharing or, or what have you. Um, and yet I don't, through my BAAs, have the rights to perform the information sharing that I'm being requested to, to, do, to do. Am I an information blocker and subject to penalty or, or what? Um, and so if I'm a state HIE, oftentimes, uh, or a, you know, a not-for-profit HIE, oftentimes I negotiated agreements Maybe those agreements. Uh, maybe those agreements are. You know, maybe I've got a, a payer-linked HIE, and I've negotiated agreements that say I'm not going to share the data with the payer unless explicitly permitted by the provider. But then, theoretically, under under 21st century cures, the payer could request information for uh, care coordination, risk adjustment, uh, any number of uh, a, a set of permitted uh, uh, payment-based use cases. And suddenly I'm in the position of being an information blocker. So um, how do HIEs think about that? Do they go back and renegotiate um, their data sharing agreements? Do they put a, an amendment out that says, you know, notwithstanding our data sharing agreements, data will flow in alignment with 21st century cures. You know, how, how does a state HIE with limited legal resources that spent the first 10 years of his existence negotiating business associate agreements and data sharing arrangements um, deal with that new reality. Yeah, so yeah, I think um, it's a great. I think it's a great question that I am not prepared to answer in the sense <laughs> that I don't want to, you know, uh, say anything that could be construed as legal advice. I am certainly not an attorney, and I think that that is what 
you know, what you just said is exactly what HIEs are doing. They're going back and saying, you know, what, what, are, what are we going to have to do when this goes into effect? And, and nobody, I think, has made um, declarative statements about how they're going to approach this yet. And everyone is looking at, you know, who is the most, who are the most likely actors who are going to reach out and try to, um, you know, get data under information blocking and not go through a normal data sharing agreement. Yeah, and, I, I, and to be very clear, what I'm about to say should not be construed as legal advice because I am not a lawyer. Um, but there is, in the preamble for the final rule, there is a section about the business associate agreements, and there's sort of two things said in there that are, one is very easy to interpret, one is very tricky to interpret. Um, the first part that's easy to interpret flat out says, if you're a business associate, under HIPAA, you have to follow your business associate agreement, right? Like you, you can't, so, you know, change healthcare. We are a business associate for our claims clearinghouse service. We can't just start giving out data to anyone who comes and asks for it. If our BAA prohibits us from doing so, we legally have to, if we were an actor, right? We legally have to follow our BAA. But the caveat that ONC gave, and this is where I think the, the tricky part comes in, and this is where the wait and see part comes in is, if you developed your BAA in a way to um, be anti-competitive and or purposely withhold data from certain parties who legally should have access to that data, then you need to be concerned that that could be information blocking. And you know, how we do, and I'll say this because I did regulations, like as a regulator, you always pick the easiest example <laughs> of what you're talking about for your for your preamble text. And so they give the really simple example in there of you have a business associate agreement um, between two different providers um, and a third provider has a separate BAA and yet like a patient sees all of them, but you can only share data between two of them because the third one's a competitor, right? Like, so they give like the easiest example possible. No offense, ONC colleagues, I get why you do that. Um, but I think what's going to be really tricky is how do you know if the BAA that you worked many years to develop with your participants would be considered anti-competitive, right? So if your BAA basically prohibits the payers um, that are, you know, who the providers are in the network for from getting access to the data, if they sign on to your participation agreement, um, is that anti-competitive, right? Now, I think it's really clear that if they refuse to sign on to your participation agreement, that's just a whole different ball game, right? And like that, that's not information blocking. They're just, they're refusing to agree to the contractual terms. Um, and so that's just different. But, but I think that's like the, the tricky caveat that ONC put in there. And I totally get why they put it in because, you know, they're trying to outthink people in the industry who are, you know, figuring out ways to still hoard data, right? So, so I think it's an HIE, what I would think through is, okay, what was the process we used to develop this business associate agreement? It, are there people who, even if they signed on to the business associate agreement, would still be prohibited from accessing data that they legally should have access to? You know, and, and is it, would it be considered anti-competitive in, in not allowing them access, right? I, I think that's the things that they have to think through about their BAAs themselves. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's exactly right. Um, 
And uh, it, again, it will be really, I think I would say, here's what I'd say. I think every HIE who's thinking about this is looking around them and saying, you know, which types of entities are going to approach me on the day after this goes into effect, right? And and what is my strategy, you know, to, to deal with this? And, and again, it, HIEs are, uh, very much interested in not being information blockers. It is not part of their generally their business models. They're about exchanging information. I think what they want to make sure is that if they have existing agreements and there's a reason why an entity didn't sign a BAA with them before or didn't want to exchange information with them before, what is that reason and how does that play out in 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 the landscape post information blocking? So it's really complex, obviously, for these entities. More to come, I'm sure, as we move forward. And I believe ONC is is going to be releasing some guidance about that. Is that is that true, Arian? I do well, not know. They they keep dropping new FAQs. It's like a a couple FAQs every couple of days. Uh, they keep sort of releasing a few additional pieces of information. <laughs> Thank you for. <laughs> surprise drop. There'll be a big, big surprise drop, and you know, it's like right. uh, Beyonce's new album, and uh, we'll all just, uh, we'll all just be enlightened. And, and that'll be a topic for the next podcast, perhaps. But anyway, we've covered a lot of ground, and I want to thank you for being with us, Lisa. Appreciate your participation. Thanks, Arian. Thanks, Genevieve. Thank you listeners for listening to today's discussion. And don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information on today's topic. Insight, innovation, transformation. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.